It's time now for today's edition of Community Conversations. It's the interview program in which we dialogue with voices from the Omaha community. And here's your host for Community Conversations. Let's welcome Cammie Carlisle. Hello, folks. Welcome once again to another edition of Community Conversations. This is Ryan O., your program director of Radio Talking Book. I know you're used to hearing the voice of Cammie Carlisle, and I'm filling in for her this time. We're going to welcome somebody to our microphones that you've heard for a long time on Radio Talking Book. She has done the live readings of the Lincoln Journal Star Omaha World Herald. She used to do the Council Bluffs Non-Pare and many other things. She is Deanne Bright. Deanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're going to have a very interesting and unique, at least for me, conversation with Deanne today, and it will veer into the personal. Deanne has been on quite a journey, uh, but Deanne, before we get to all of this heavy stuff, uh, I know we've done a volunteer spotlight with you before, mm-hmm. but let's quickly just cover your background, um, kind of where you're from, your experiences, and, and how you came to Radio Talking Book. Well, I have a BA in broadcasting and uh, wanted to be a radio news anchor and reporter since college, and I fulfilled that dream working at KCAR and KFAB and WOW AMFM here in Omaha and at uh, radio stations in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Charleston, South Carolina. So you went in broadcasting for how long? Oh, gosh, about 30-some years. Holy cow. Yeah. So you did TV and radio. Well, I interned in television, but I preferred radio. I liked the immediacy of it back then. Got it. So you were for quite a while at iHeartRadio. We heard you doing traffic, and occasionally you do fill-in on KFAB, among other stations. And that ended a couple years ago. Right. With the pandemic, a lot of us were put on furlough. And then the following October, all the people who were furloughed were told not to come back. Now, this is a cliche question, and I will admit it, but how did you feel about that, Deanne, when, <laughs> when you were told not to come back to your job? Um, it was really hard on me, actually. I tend to make the mistake of wrapping my identity around what I do more than what I am. <laughs> and so when you lose a job, when you're in that kind of a, a mode, you um, kind of lose your identity, and you have to kind of rebuild that after that happens to you. That's actually very profound, and I don't mean to get off in the weeds, but it won't be the last time we uh, go down the philosophical road here. So let me just ask, you said wrapping your identity around what you do versus Mm -hmm. what you are, and yet isn't part of what you do part of what you are? Absolutely. But you can depend on one more than the other sometimes, and you maybe shouldn't, because work is not necessarily going to always be there. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things in life that won't be there, and you have to concentrate on the things that are are uh, important. You know? So you lost your job. What happened then? Well, I was working out at Vallis Pumpkin Patch at the time, so that helped ease the blow a bit. I was able to continue working out there. I love uh, feeding the pumpkin-eating dragon out there, and uh, just enjoy that experience. So it was. it's good that it happened while I was there and not alone in my apartment. <laughs> so <laughs> it was helpful to have the nice folks out at Vallas around me at right. that time. And you also work at Jocelyn, right? Jocelyn Castle. Um, I am a docent out there. I do tours and I also bartend at special events. Wow. So it's not as if the, your job was the only thing you had going on. No, so. no, I've got other things. But I loved radio and I knew at that point probably it at my age and stage, I probably was out. So, right. Yeah. 
Well, it's kind of like what Cammie says. Uh, even though she left radio a while ago, it always kind of stays with you. Oh, it gets yeah. in your blood big time. <laughs> There's something about it. It doesn't pay well uh, compared to television, compared to even, I think, print media. It's not uh, particularly fast food. prestigious. Fast food. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's terribly prestigious. Um, and yet, for those of us that are in it, it really does bite you. It's like mm-hmm. a bug. It is. It's, um, Yeah. <laughs> so how have you coped with the loss of, of radio? Do you still enjoy listening to it? Do you still think about it? How? Actually, I, I don't listen to it a lot anymore because I'm a little disappointed with the route a lot of things have taken. The The lack of local talent being used in radio has really ruined it for me. Well, I'll tell you, Deanne, I miss your inside baseball uh, insights. You used to come in and I'd say, how's it going over at KFAB? And, and you would tell me they're doing this and that. And mm-hmm. and of course, now I'm listening with a very critical ear and I'm hearing guys do these fill-in newscasts, and they don't sound like they're from Omaha, and they don't have any attachment. And I, too, one of the things I love most about radio is its local flavor. Absolutely. And See, we that's, don't have it anymore, except right. for you know Gary Saddlemeyer and some mm-hmm. of the morning and afternoon talent. But a lot of the music stuff is voice-tracked. Yeah. It's very and disappointing. At radio, that was one of the main things that radio had going for it, in that we could be on the air in two seconds alerting people to maybe a high pe- high high-speed pursuit down 84th Street mm-hmm. or uh, sudden weather change or something like that. We can be on the air in a heartbeat. But with everything voice-tracked and everything, you know, done maybe in Chicago or someplace else, you you lose that. And that is really one of radio's most important assets. Yep. Yeah. And, and we don't have it as much anymore. Now people are, I think, watching the Internet more than – but yep. they can't do that when they're driving, can they? No. At least not safely. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you left radio. You've Mm -hmm. still got a couple other jobs, but uh, Mm -hmm. just to kind of set up the stage a little bit more, um, tell us about your personal life, what you feel comfortable sharing. Well, within the same 30 minutes that I got the phone call that I was no longer at iHeart, I got a phone call from my kidney doctor telling me that my kidneys had entered an irreversible death spiral. So in those (laughs) 30 minutes, I lost my job, and then I was told... There was no way that I was going to avoid um, the loss of my kidneys. Just to give us a sense of how long you've been living with this, do you remember the exact date when these two fateful phone calls occurred? Uh, I only know it was in October because I was sitting in the dragon shed with Xander the dragon when it happened. So this was before the pandemic? Um, was it October of 2019? I think so. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're talking yes, about two years. Yes, it was two, two years. years ago. Okay, yes, it so was two years ago. A little over two right. years that, mm-hmm. that you've lived with this. this yes, is, I have. This is how we'll kind of start on this journey. Yeah. And um, again, to further set up the stage, tell us, are you married? Do you have any kids? Do you have family? What does that look like? Um, I've been divorced a very long time, and I have two kitty cats, Harry and Luna. I applaud heartily. <laughs> and um, I do uh, – the three of us are our family. It's wonderful. My folks are still – with us and living in Papillion. And um, I have one brother, and uh, he and his sister, uh, my sister-in-law, live in the same apartment area that I do, and it's nice. So on that day, when you were told about your kidneys, what was your reaction? I called my boss and said, I think I should go home at this point because I'm afraid the wrong customer might get it in the face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big so, news, so uh, kind I of went, a double blow. I, I went home from Valas that day so that 
because I just knew the wrong person would show up. It's just the way life works, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took a day off, and then I came back, and thank goodness I had that for a while. It helped. So you're you're told about your kidneys. Mm -hmm. Then what happened? Well, then I continued under a doctor's, I don't want to say exactly care. It was more like just he watched as things went south. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, it just kept going worse and worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon I was told that I would need dialysis to live. And this was in May of this last year. Mm -hmm. So I tried um, a type of dialysis called peritoneal dialysis where they put a catheter into your belly area, and you get your dialysis at home that way. I left my apartment, moved in with my folks because I had to live with somebody, a human, not a cat. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the cats were even problematic. Well, long story short, the catheter kept migrating into areas it shouldn't have, causing intense pain, and Uh I had to have it removed. So peritoneal dialysis failed for me. And I took a break away from all of that, but by November, this last November, they told me, you've got to go on hemo or you're in real, real trouble. So I tried it, and it was not for me, and I made the decision that I wanted to have quality of life versus quantity of life at this point. Now, and this I is, this is quite out. a journey that, that you're taking here. Um, will you share some of the details of what led you to this momentous decision? Uh, you said you tried it and didn't like it. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like? Well, um, I I didn't feel like I got good care where I was being treated. Mm -hmm. Um, Very cold. Um, And I hated going there. And it's every other day, Ryan. I mean, so you spend the day in a bad place and then you go to sleep and then you wake up the next day. And about the time you, at the end of the next day that you may be a little recovered, then you're back in the next day. To me, that was not quality of life. Right. So it's every other day without fail. Um, It's three days a week, and it's four to five hours a day, and it's unpleasant. And I, um, some people handle it. Some people can do that. Maybe they have, you know, a real strong reason why they don't want to go. But to me, it wasn't worth it. It really wasn't. When you did the dialysis, mm-hmm. and you said it was very cold. Uh, is part of what you're describing the approach of the staff? Both. It was both, you're, you're cold inside and out, you're cold in the room, and the people that uh, quote-unquote cared for me, I felt were very cold too. Mm-hmm. So it was just just a bad experience. Now, when we talked about this beforehand, you mentioned that you tried to be very proactive, and they seemed to be resistant that's that. true. That's is true. that something that they're in, in your estimation? Are they not used to that? Well, um, I had my thought was watching other people who came in that these folks they didn't ask questions. They just sat down and did what they were told and accepted that. And maybe if I had done it for a year, I'd have been the same way. I don't know, but that wasn't. I looked at these people and I just I saw such misery, you know, and I thought, why? Why prolong that? If you have faith, um, I just felt like, no, you know, I really um, don't want to be under this for the rest of my time. Right. 
in the intervening time since you and I talked about this before, I've, I've talked to two friends that have done dialysis, and both of them have expressed what you did. Oh. One of them was actually told, and, and these are both blind people uh, who went blind because of, of diabetes. Sure. Our listeners, many of them who may be listening right now are probably familiar with this because diabetes is a large cause of, of blindness in in America and in the world. Mm-hmm. So I've talked to two people, and one of them was actually told by a provider at a dialysis center, it's just easier if you go with the program. Mm-hmm. This lady was a person who did ask questions, who did mm-hmm. um, sometimes argue, who did protest, <laughs> and she was told condescendingly, honey, you just need to go with the program. Yep. So Yeah, that's basically the feeling you have. It's like sit down, shut up, let us plug you in, yeah. and don't make waves. Let's try to, in just for fairness sake, what do you think could burnout, could being overwhelmed with, as you said, the misery, mm-hmm. could this contribute to the medical staff being just like, for God's sake, we just want to get, you know, do our job and go home? Yeah, I think do that... you think that's part of it? I think I've, I've spoken to nurses who say there is a rabbit hole that nurses can go down fairly easily, and that is just to lose sight of the fact that there is a human being yeah. attached to the machine. Um, and so I think that that's what had happened. I think that's closer to us now in that phenomenon now with, with COVID and the prolonged pandemic, you hear a lot more about healthcare worker burnout. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this doesn't extend to other areas we don't think about. Do you think that that plays a part in, in the, the fear that a lot of people have in the medical industry? Well, yeah. And to be honest with you, I, have been cared for in other respects in another facility, and it wasn't like that. Uh-huh. Okay, um, I get in. Um, I sit in an infusion chair at at Creighton to get um, help from my low blood, low red blood cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you walk in there, and the people were caring. The place was warm. You had this great feeling, but you walk into some of these dialysis clinics, and it's just. A real different vibe. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how else to put it. I wonder if it's cultural. I don't know. Um, you know, sometimes it really is kind of a cliche, but it's it's about leadership. It's it's mm-hmm. top down. If your mm-hmm. if your leadership is uh, po- positive, optimistic, then perhaps that plays a, a large role. But uh, I wonder if that's or maybe the nature of the beast. From what you're describing, dialysis is is a real tough thing to to go through. Mm-hmm. Yes. And like I said, some people I've heard of manage it just fine, but I didn't see anyone managing it just fine at this place. So you decided it wasn't for you. When exactly was that? December 7th of last year. Pearl Harbor Day of 2021. (laughs) Yes. Um, I kept getting double speak. I finally got to talk to a doctor. The doctor was like, well... um, we're going to have to extend, you know, your time here. And at that point, I just said, you know what? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, I think that maybe my nephrologist jumped the gun a little bit because I have been okay since December 7th. Most people who go off of dialysis die within the month. And I'm here talking to you. Drove here. You sound I good. have my, I have an apartment again. I have my independence back. And I'm doing okay. I mean, I don't feel great physically, obviously, but I'm functioning. I'm living. Well, the day you went off dialysis was I was trying to calculate in my head. Math is not my strong suit, but it was almost three months ago. Right. Um, We're recording this in early March. I don't know when it'll air, but um, 
you kind of already answered part of my question. You know, you're not feeling the greatest, but you are up and around. You're active. What other changes are you feeling in yourself since you left dialysis, both physically and emotionally? Well, <clears throat> what I've noticed is it's real easy to go down any number of, I'm, I'm using this rabbit hole analogy mm-hmm. because I, to me that works. In my mind, I can see these, these ways, these paths you can go down that are harmful. Uh, one thing, when you know your time is sort of borrowed, <laughs> you, you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of regret because that is a worthless emotion and you can do absolutely nothing about it. Um, there's, there's just a number of, you know, bitterness. That's one that I've fought is, you know, it seems like as much as I want to concentrate on all the good things that happened in my life and all the things I'm thankful for, a lot of bad things pop up too. And it's so easy to say, to get bitter about it. You know, like I thought I let that go a long, long time ago and now it's popping into my head again. Right. And I don't know why these things are happening. Um, but, but they are. <laughs> well, I think we've now come to the centerpiece of this conversation, the, what motivated me to ask you to do this interview. And it is a very difficult question, but I think it needs to be addressed. And that is... Uh, to put it squarely, you're facing your own mortality. Mm-hmm. Now. Yes. You're facing your own death. Tell me what that looks like for you. Well, I don't, I tr- I'm trying not to think about it too much, but at the same time, it does pop in there. Like this morning happened to be a very nice sunny morning. I was out having tea, and I thought, how nice it'll be when there's leaves on the trees and flowers in the pots and the pool, you know, is, is ready and all that. And then then, then this other thought closes down on me and says, oh, Deanne, you really think you're going to see all that? And that's the struggle you face. Um, a dream that I had really, to me, was perfectly, um, perfect analogy. I was on a bridge. I was driving. I could see that it was windy. I didn't want to get on that bridge, so I was going to exit. And all of a sudden, there was a terrible noise, and I could see that the bridge was exploding on one end. It was imploding you know, the pyroclastic cloud of concrete dust was rising and it was coming. And I suddenly realized I wasn't in the car anymore. I was on foot. I could not outrun it. And I was on the bridge. There was no exit. And I stood there and I said, well, there's nothing I can really do. Here it comes. And I woke up. It was not a pleasant dream, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. I thought, wow, that kind of sums up the way it is. <laughs> so, but I don't look at death as really an explosion so much. I have hope. I have faith that it is a, a transition. Well, you you said the F word now twice, so let's delve into that, and that is faith. Tell mm-hmm. me about your faith. Well, I am a Christian. Um, I am not really involved heavily in any churches, but I do believe um, in Jesus Christ and that he will uh, redeem me in the end. So tell me more about that. Uh, do you, if you don't have a church, do you read the Bible? Yes. Um, not Huh, religiously. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't help it. No pun intended. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I do read the Bible and I have a devotional. And um, But uh, yeah, it's more of a personal thing with me. I, I've tried no, a number of churches locally and it just didn't, didn't work out. Right, right. I, I've had the same issue where just church <sighs> yeah. after church doesn't feel like it, it fits. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, I think religion and spirituality is actually very important, but Community is important as well, and mm-hmm. it's hard to feel 
like you belong there. Um, So you probably are feeling that particularly powerfully now, Mm -hmm. given your limited window that you're dealing with. Yeah, that's true. Um, There are times I wonder, you know, why, again, why did this happen? Why is that going on? Why am I in this position now? Blah, blah, blah. And those are questions that really, do they really even need to be answered? I mean, to me, it's kind of a waste of time, but you can't help it, you know? Um, you want to just concentrate on, for me, I want to die with grace. I don't want to go out being bitter and resentful and full of guilt and all of that. So I'm making a very concerted effort not to. When you speak of uh, not being bitter and having grace, does that involve relationships in your life that you currently have? Uh, Do you hope to work on those at all as part of your of your journey toward this ending? Hmm. Well, I mean, we all have relationships we wish were, wish were better. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think a lot of it has, I've been very unfortunate in having some real bad luck in the professional world, um, having bad luck with people who I thought were my friends. Um, there, a lot of things went wrong. And again, um, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and think about that, but it programs you when it happens to you repeatedly, 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 you begin to just expect the bad stuff. And that's what I'm trying to pull myself away from right now. Right. Do do you sense, because you've been very open about your current condition, Mm -hmm. The, the people that are your friends, that are the constants in your life, have you sensed a difference in them since you've started to experience this? Well, in some, yes. Um, I feel like they kind of want a distance. They don't know what to say, Ryan. And I get that. It's uncomfortable. Um, but others have had their own major life-changing experiences recently. And so I can't say that it necessarily has anything to do with me. Um, but yeah, you do kind of sense that people are like, well, we'll have to get together and do lunch sometime, but the call never comes. I wonder if your um, stark facing of your own mortality is making them uncomfortable because it makes them think about theirs. Oh, yeah. I believe there's part of that. And it is painful. I mean, I, I am taking a very proactive approach to this, and I have made my plans. I've picked out my plot. I've picked out my marker. I have, you know, I've written down what hymns and things I want to have at my service. <clears throat> For me, that was really helpful because it gave me a little control back. Because when you're facing your moral, mor- mortality, you you don't. When you're a control freak, it's a little hard. Because <laughs> you really—that's actually very profound. I, you know, I too, am a control freak, and you're yeah. dealing with the ultimate loss of control. Yes, here. yes, so, you are. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, and I, I'm trying not to insert myself too much in the interview, but my my reactions, again, I've never had an interview like this. And as a fellow control freak, uh, I hear you talking about this, and I think to myself, my God, you know, it's it's unimaginable. How could anyone plan their own funeral? And yet, then you say. I'm a control freak. It gives me back a measure of control. And I, what possible understanding there is, I have an inkling of it. Yes. So. And I kind of know, I, I can put in my mind, I know what it's going to look like and I know it's good. It's what I want. Um, and I know the right things will be done. And 
most importantly, it takes all that away from my family. I don't want my family to have to be stressed out by making those decisions at a really nasty time. Um, If you know, my gosh, then utilize that knowledge and help your family out by pre-planning. How has your family dealt with this? You you mentioned you'd live with your parents for a while. What Mm -hmm. has their response been like? Well, my father doesn't really talk about it. (laughs) I think it's too painful. Yeah. Uh, But my mom and I are both very verbal creatures, (laughs) and so we... We've discussed it, and uh, I, I think she's, she's really glad that I'm taking these steps, but she's also really sorry that it has to happen at all. But, you know, again, that's not, it's not helpful to say, well, I wish it wouldn't. Let's just deal with what we're given here. And right. So, yeah. We talked, and, and it, was, it was a lighthearted conversation, and yet there was an underlying seriousness. We talked about your cats. Uh, yeah. You don't have any kids. You don't have a husband. Mm-hmm. Um, your cats are your your biggest concern. Have you made arrangements for them? Well, I, I have an uncle who says he's going to take care of that. But in all honesty, you know, as the control freak, I wish I knew exactly what was going to happen. But I, I don't think that's one area I'm going to be able to control. Mm-hmm. What would you say at this moment as we sit here and speak? And uh, I know this is going to play later, but it's March 8th right now. What is the most important thing in your life right now? My faith. It's got to be. I'm working hard on on increasing it, on making my walk with Jesus closer, because um, the bad guy is really putting a lot of pressure. He knows how vulnerable a person in my position is. And so there's a lot of spiritual attack underway. It it just goes hand in hand, you know. The more faith you have, the more the bad guy is going to be PO'd. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I am uh, absorbing a lot of flaming arrows, and I just want to have that closer walk so I can not absorb them but deflect them. You know, our world right now, you you're, you're referencing spiritual warfare, mm-hmm. and it feels like for the last few years we have been under assault in, in every arena. Absolutely. It, it feels like, you know, the, the, the secular terms for it are polarization, uh, negativity, conflict. Um, translated to a biblical perspective, uh, I would call it spiritual warfare. Yes. So you're, you're feeling that not only in your personal life, but it feels like it's in the wider expanse around us. Absolutely. How do you view the things that are happening right now whether it's uh, local politics, national, international, right now Russia's really big on the stage, Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. How do you view those things? We, we talk about them at the dinner table. We talk about them with our friends, maybe on Zoom mm-hmm. at parties. And it all seems so trivial sitting here talking to you right now. How do you, how do you see those things? Oh, well, it's certainly the events going on in our world are not, not trivial. And the devil has been very, very busy um, getting into our schools to start, you know, ruining generations mm-hmm. um, into the, the, the destruction of the family. Um, and then, you know, just tearing apart our moral code. And uh, the, he's, he's not stupid. He knows exactly how to um, fool us, <laughs> basically. He's, he's a master deceptor. And I think that there's been a massive deception that's been going on for a long time. And uh, now I'm seeing more and more of the fruits of that labor. And it's terrible. I, I cry over the world and the nation and what's going on. Um, 
sometimes I'm even a little thankful I'm getting off this rock. <laughs> right. That's an honest answer. That's, that's very honest. I've, I've wondered about that. Do you have a bucket list? I'm thinking of that ridiculous song by Tim McGraw about 20 years ago, Live Like You Were Dying. Uh-huh. Um, and I call it ridiculous because to me it was corny and, and trite mm-hmm. and saccharine. But now, of course, I wonder, do you have things you would like to do? Yeah, I've had a, a list. I, I had a, a near-death experience in my 20s also with an illness. So I, that kind of, I've always stopped to smell the flowers. <laughs> I have always been big on um, experience. I want more and more experience, just like Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Live for experiences and, you know, get out and do things. Now, it's getting a little harder for me because of my health. But yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of traveling. I've seen a lot of the things. My top bucket list thing was to eat Prince Edward Island mussels on Prince Edward Island. And I fulfilled that about four years ago. So wow, yeah. And um, so yeah, the only thing I didn't get done that I kind of wanted to is I wanted to sing the national anthem at something. Something, anything. It could have just been, you know, peewee, peewee baseball. I don't care, but something like that. I never got the chance. But uh, for the most part, I have fulfilled. I don't have, like I said, regrets, really. Um, I mean, we all have a certain number of things we wish had been different in our lives, absolutely. But I didn't sit around. I did do things. I accomplished things. I learned how to do – I actually learned how to drive a mule team – through the busy streets of Charleston as a tour guide and driver and didn't get anybody or anything killed. <laughs> so, Congratulations. Very, very proud of my yeah. work there. I was the first female trolley driver for, uh, at the time, North America's only tea farm. So I learned all about tea from um, a professional tea taster and did trolley tours out on the farm and taught about how to grow and produce tea. Fascinating stuff, actually. That is fascinating. Yeah. Um, I got to work in a bed and breakfast, which was in the home of the youngest signer of the Declaration of Independence, Edward Rutledge, when he lived in that house as governor of South Carolina before the American, um, before they moved the capital to Columbia. So Charleston was really huge for me as far as experience. I've taught water aerobics to fine, beautiful older ladies. Um, I mean, my life has had a lot. I've, I've seen and done a lot You've of done things. You've done a good deal. A lot of a, things. A good deal mm-hmm. in your life. Um, as you look back, do you have one memory uh, of your life that stays with you as particularly special? Or it can be more than one. Well, the one time that I felt just completely accepted on this planet was uh, Synod School of Fine Arts. It was a Presbyterian thing, and uh, it was kind of like fame. <laughs> Went to a little art school, learned um, a play and a musical and all that, and then we took it on the road, and we uh, went to churches everywhere and did our little show, and I think that was probably one of the happiest times of my life. I also really enjoyed college. What was it about college that uh, you loved so much? I liked learning, and my brain was like a sponge. I also <laughs> was an exchange student to Germany for a year. And that was the hardest thing I ever did. That even, I don't know, dialysis comes close. <laughs> yeah. but, but this was a tough thing. You know, I went over there not knowing the language and the culture was different. And it was a really tough time. And so when I got back to the United States, I felt like I, could, I was Wonder Woman. I could do anything. I could 
I could do anything because I could speak the language. I could understand what was going on. And I, my you brain was German, like a little right? sponge. I did. I was pretty fluent in it at one time, yes. Mm-hmm. How do you want to be remembered after you're gone? When, when people say the name Deanne Bright, uh, what Ooh. do you want them to think of? Well, I want them to have a real positive vibe, okay? Despite the negative things, I want them to remember that I kept bouncing back. I kept getting back in the saddle, coming back, starting over and moving on and and doing things. And I think that I've impacted people by my ability to do that. It hasn't always been easy, but I'm really proud of the fact that I just kept picking up the pieces. Well, you certainly have. You're, You're sitting here talking to me today proves it. Uh, almost three months after you quit dialysis and you're still out and about. Yeah, you're Back amazing, in your own apartment huh? doing your own thing, taking care of your cats. And mm-hmm. we've got you on the list for our live reads um, yes. if we want you to come in. So we are about to the end of our time, Deanne, and it has been a fascinating and, and deeply moving conversation. My final question for you, what message would you like to leave for our listeners and, and for everybody that will be listening to this podcast? Well, Try not to despair. The times are tough. Seems like the whole world's closing in on itself. But try to remember to to turn to that higher power. Trust in him. Um, Trust that your own heart is in the right place. And just um, don't give up. Well, Deanna, I will tell you that it has been a a pleasure and a privilege knowing you and we miss you terribly at Radio Talking Book. You were one of my favorite readers and still are. Thank you. You're welcome here anytime and even if you want to come and sing the national anthem for us during a break, <laughs> I would be delighted to, to have you do it. Um, thank you for all you've given us and thank you for your life oh. and for, for coming over today and speaking to us about it. Thank you for the opportunity. Folks, this has been Ryan O at Radio Talking Book with Community Conversations. Our guest has been Deanne Bright, a volunteer at Radio Talking Book, former broadcaster, and um, she has been a, a shared a fascinating journey she's having as she faces her own mortality. And we hope all of you will take a moment to reflect on what's important. And in the meantime, please stay tuned for more great programming on Radio Talking Book. This is Ryan O signing out for now. Bye, bye, folks. You've been listening to Community Conversations on Radio Talking Book. It's the interview program that brings you voices from the Omaha community. The Radio Talking Book Network is brought to you with the cooperation of KIOS-FM in Omaha and statewide through the facilities of NET Radio and Television. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 46 years. Thank you for being a loyal Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.